3: Phil Mackey, Judd Zolgad. They don't fool around. That's why people trust them. I know. Mackey and Judd on 1500 ESPN. Putting fake money where their big mouths are.
4: Money talks in a game that I pick. Believe me, it's a winner. What I know could get you rich. Because all I pick is winners. Money talks. money talks.
3: Mackey and Judd are picking games for this weekend against the spread. Are they
1: pros or
3: Joes?
1: Let's find out. Ooh, this is easily the most exciting stretch run we've had in the four-year history of the Mackey and Judge show for these picks. And we'll get to Vikings-Bengals, Vikings 11-point Vikings favorites at the end of the segment here. Uh, Todd Furman from the Bet the Board podcast. He's been a friend of the show for a number of years here. And Todd, we, your knowledge has rubbed off on us because the standings are as follows. Judd 41-28-1 after a two-and-three week last week. Uh, I had a four-and-one week and jumped up to 40-29-1, just a game behind Judd. And Dave 2-3 hanging in there at 37-32-1, four games back at Judd, three back of me. Uh, so hey, I don't know. I mean, we should probably think about a second career here. I think you, it's pretty obvious. You
0: guys having all these records over five hundred. I'm surprised you haven't had knocks on your door from local bookmakers throughout the Minneapolis area. Going, you know, you can't be giving away this kind of handicapping gold because you're putting a hurting on their balance sheets.
1: Yeah, it's very. I'd uh, answer. I mean, I've had a couple knocks. I didn't want to tell you guys, but uh, <laughs> none for me so far. <laughs> no, <laughs> none for me so far. Steering clear of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so how do you, now that Carson Wentz is out for the year, is the NFC just all jumbled up right now? What do uh, the smart people in Vegas think about just sort of the NFC and how to handicap a handful of teams right now?
0: Well, it's been very interesting because you have such different schools of thought on what Wentz is worth to the Philadelphia Eagles. We talked about it a little bit on the Bet the Board podcast earlier this week. Uh, my colleague, Payne Insider, and I, we make about a four-and-a-half-point adjustment to Philadelphia and them going forward. But then you see some prominent offshore oddsmakers say, you know what, we're going to make it right around a field goal, uh, maybe even a little bit less. I think that's a leap of faith, despite Nick Foles having experience. We know what he's capable of, having seen him at his best. Because Carson Wentz provides such a different element from his mobility standpoint and the way this offense looks. Uh, as he continues to mature during his sophomore season. Now, Philadelphia has a nice luxury compared to some teams. They do have a very talented ground game, so they should be able to still run the football. And defensively, uh, their defensive line doesn't see a drop-off just because Carson Wentz isn't out there. But when you forecast things down the road, potential dates against the Vikings and the Saints, uh, those are matchups that I think you'd love to have your starting quarterback available uh, that it may ultimately come back to bite him. Who do do you like in in the
2: conference right now with the way things are broken?
0: If I'm picking a team based on the numbers that are available, that the Vikings are anywhere from a 6-1 to to 8-1 favorite, and the Saints somewhere in that 10-12 to range, I think New Orleans offers the most value. Not because I necessarily think they're the best team, uh, but if you're going to give me a one-game setting, and I have Drew Brees and some of his offensive weapons uh, with a rapidly improving Saints defense, I just trust them a little bit more uh, than I do Case Keenan and make the big plays. But the home field advantage of Minneapolis, if, they're able, if the Vikings are able to secure that uh, in the road to the Super Bowl going through Minneapolis, a much different dynamic, because we've talked about it all season long, how much different this team looks playing in their own building than they can on the road.
1: Hey, Todd Furman, if you were going to handicap It's a Wonderful Life versus Die Hard as a better Christmas movie, what would, what would the spread be?
0: See, I'm on the other mindset, so I have to put Die Hard on the outside looking in. Just because it takes place during the holiday time, I don't <sighs> wow. see... Christmas being a fundamental tenant of that particular plot line. Uh, so that one has to be on the outside looking in, making it a massive underdog. Wow.
1: Then, I mean, See, I, I'd, love, I'd love for you to make your case for why It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, It's a Wonderful Life could have happened in July. So a guy gets a little bit depressed. He goes home. It's
2: Christmas. The Christmas tree is right there. It's yeah, Christmas well, season. Are, and, and yeah, all die die hard, die hard, die hard.
1: Same thing. No, I'm sorry. No. Just because a guy gets Todd, a little depressed and stands on a bridge, it could have happened out, in August. Honest to God, help help me out.
0: It's it's a very good point. He could have done that during August, but you know when you have the cold and dreary dark days, yeah. you know uh, you figure the weather plays a big role. So we have to go. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life, much more a Christmas movie than Die Hard. I'm depressed because it's summer, Mary.
1: So Die Hard Two is more of a Christmas movie because it took place in a, in wintry conditions. Okay, noted. All right, let's get to our <laughs> let's get to our picks. <laughs> Um, Okay, no, no, thanks, bye. So Judd's up by a game uh, over me, and then Dave is hanging in there, four back of Judd. Five games every week, Vikings-Bengals to to end it. Chargers, a point favorite on the road over fading, failing Kansas City. Judd? I am one game up. My palms are sweating. My knees are knocking. I'm
2: getting nervous. I'm getting nervous. But, all right, Chargers-Kansas City, uh, this is so close, but I'm actually going to go with the Chiefs. I'm taking the home team here. I feel like I'm being played a little bit. Uh, a couple of weeks ago when Kansas City traveled to the Jets, I took the Jets and I won on that. But in this case, with Kansas City at home, and I think their play is starting to improve a bit, I think they might have found something again.
1: I'm going to take the Chiefs. I feel like we've probably uh, you know gone a little too far with Chargers love and Chiefs hate here, so I feel like... The smart people are going to say, "Get on the Chiefs bandwagon." I just think the Chargers are better. Philip Rivers is playing uh, very well relative to his age and what he's done the last couple of years. I think the Chargers win a coin flip game here. I go, I'll go Chargers.
3: I'm going to take a different tactic. A tie. I need wins. Todd, what would you do?
0: <laughs> I, I don't even think this is I, I like legal. Appro- I like the approach there. Hopefully, I mean, you listened to the Bet the Board podcast yesterday. This was one Did of the strongest investments. <laughs> A st- wow! Did very you listen strong. to it, Harrigan? No, if I was gonna listen later.
3: I
2: think
0: you should get. I think you should find out once you make your pick what he said.
2: Chargers.
3: I like the Chargers. They're the better team.
0: The uh, this game has been interesting, though, guys, because you have seen professional money coming in on both sides. Kansas City opened as a one-point favorite. Number early in the week ballooned out to the Chargers minus two. Uh, and you had some significant buyback taking this number back to a pick'em. You look at these two teams, and you mentioned the Chargers, seven and two straight up over the last nine games. Kansas City potentially riding the ship at least for a week with a win against the Raiders last weekend. This will boil down to what team can execute in the red zone, 28th and 29th in terms of red zone drives Dang. resulting in touchdowns. Whatever team will get sevens over threes will walk out of Arrowhead with a victory on Saturday night. So, uh Rather than share with my perspective on it, I'm going to abstain and encourage all of uh, your loyal listeners to check out the Bet the Board podcast for this one. Love, Love it. Wow. That's good
1: stuff. Nice, nice. Um, <laughs> all right. Carolina at home as a two-and-a-half-point favorite over Green Bay with Rogers returning. Rogers returns.
2: The Packers will be incredibly inspired, and ultimately their defense still stinks. Uh, Carolina has been playing well. I like them. If this game were at Lambeau, I m- might be very, very tempted to go with with the Packers, but after going back and forth and vacillating a bit, I am going to go with the home team and take Carolina. I think they will win this game.
1: I'm gonna make the Packers prove it. I'm gonna take Carolina in this one. This is you now it wouldn't shock me at all if Rogers came back and the Panthers uh, bounced back to earth a little bit here, but it's a tough spot for the Packers and Rodgers. He's coming back to to have to win three tough games. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make them prove it by picking Carolina here.
3: And by making prove it, you mean you're gonna make Aaron Rodgers prove it? Because that's really all that matters. When he broke the the left collarbone a couple years ago, it took him a while to get back to Aaron Rodgers form. I have a feeling that's gonna be the same case, which means Carolina gets the win and they cover the two and a half.
0: This game really doesn't have a a true pros versus Joes divide given uh, the Aaron Rodgers situation. A lot of folks valuing his return differently. It's a question of if you think he's going to come back at 100%. There's all, all sorts of value on Green Bay. If you think he comes back at about 50 to 60%, Carolina becomes the side... Um, as things progress with the Rodgers injury, we made it about a nine-point adjustment as Brett Hundley started to improve. So with this number here, uh, if Hundley was starting, you would be talking about Carolina north of a touchdown favorite, kind of where the number inched towards earlier this week. Uh, but under a field goal, again, it's a prove-it-to-me type scenario, asking Rodgers to be at his absolute best against a good defense here, uh, I think is a leap of faith. So I will provide the... Uh, Decision-breaking vote and go. Carolina will be the side of the professionals.
1: Fair enough. Uh, New England. This is a, this is this is the most interesting game of the week, just because it's you know two AFC Titans. But the spread is interesting too. New England after a loss and Pittsburgh after a huge offensive performance and a win. Mm-hmm. New England's still a three-point road favorite in Pittsburgh.
2: And that's why I can't go, go there. I'm going Steelers uh, based on the fact that this game's in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh remains a very good team uh the Patriots offense has not been great of late there, there's an there's enough things going wrong for the Patriots right now that
1: if you are going to give me the Steelers and points in Pittsburgh I'm going Pittsburgh so I this is I'm just gonna go with my instinct here that everything screams pick Pittsburgh in this game so that's a big part of the reason why I'm going to run New England, and also the fact that New England needs this game if they want home field advantage throughout the AFC playoffs. They're a game back of, of Pittsburgh right now. So, New England in a bit of a desperation mode if they want to play home games, and that mattered, I think, last year when those two teams met as well. So, I'm going to go New England, Dave
3: Harrigan. 100% agree with you. A three-point dog at home screams, Pick Pittsburgh! We want you to Pittsburgh pick Pittsburgh! But you and I both know they are a paper tiger. Patriots crush
0: 34-11 and 11 is the record against the spread for New England coming off of a straight up loss going back to 2003 so you're not going to get rich betting against this team uh, when they lay an egg in their previous week. This number a little bit inflated, though, because if we factor in home field advantage and a lot of the other components here, there's no way New England would be more than a touchdown favorite against the Steelers. Some things to think about. If Ryan Shazier was out there for Pittsburgh, you would have a ton of professional support for the Steelers, knowing how good he is in coverage against opposing tight ends. At the same time, some skepticism there, but you look at New England's receiving core, Pittsburgh wants to try and get out, play physical. Uh, They can make things difficult, and also keep in mind, and if we look at the game that was played in January between these two teams, the Steelers offense will look a little bit different with a healthy Levy and Bell and receivers like Martavis, Bryan and Juju Smith-Schuster, a significant upgrade over the likes of Sammy Coates and Kobe Hamilton. Pittsburgh at three will take professional money at two and a half. You will see uh, professional money actually coming on new england and this bet guys honestly uh-huh. i've spoken to about four or five books so far this week they said they're pretty much split right down the middle mm. so they're really looking forward to the magnitude of this one that's gonna <laughs> feel like a playoff game from heinz
1: yeah that's that's awesome uh and then if that's the main event this week on the nfl slate this is probably uh the secondary main event seattle at home as a two and a half point favorite over the rams judd the rams can score lots of points uh i like
2: seattle but but they're banged up uh certainly on defense Rams coming off a loss, but that offense can generate points. You go to Seattle, it's going to be difficult, but I am actually going to take the L.A. Rams in this game.
1: I agree. Uh, Rams averaged six yards per play and just took it to the Philadelphia defense there as well, even though they've lost some of these games against like Vikings Philadelphia. The Rams are absolute heavyweights, and I think they win this game against Seattle.
3: It's a sweep. Seattle's defense is too banged up.
0: You guys are on the side of where professional money will ultimately come down on the Rams. But What's interesting for this number, the Rams did open as a a one-and-a-half point favorite. Prices ballooned out to Seattle minus two-and-a-half. So pros got out ahead of the curve, but some major concerns about Seattle's defense. We know that Cliff Averill, Richard Sherman, and Cam Chancellor are lost for the season, but the bigger injuries to keep tabs on this week, Bobby Wagner dealing with a hamstring injury, and K.J. Wright, Still not having cleared concussion protocol. You look at the Rams, they're getting healthy in the receiving quarter with Robert Woods coming back, and two key offensive line injuries that you thought were going to play a major role in Andrew Whitworth and Rob Havenstein. Looks like they'll both be able to go out there and give it a go. At three, you'd have strong uh, sentiment towards the Rams uh, from the professionals. At two and a half, only modest, and that's because a lot of folks got out ahead of it, uh, and they were able to take Seattle plus right. one and a half early.
1: And then this is a really tricky one here because I don't think there's any doubt in anyone's mind that the Vikings should beat the Bengals. The question is by how much. And the spread is 11 right now for the home Minnesota Vikings, Judd.
2: It's probably way too much, uh, but until the the uh, Panthers game, the Vikings have treated me very, very well. Uh, the Bengals clearly don't care. They have gi- given up. I don't think there's a lot of pride at play here uh, coming off their loss to the Bears last week. So I am actually going to bite the bullet here and take the Vikings. Ditto. Dave? I don't feel comfortable
3: with the 11. That's a little much. I have no doubt that the Vikings will win the game, but I think Bengals might just show up to, (laughs) at least just to show up after what they did last week. I think they might, if not make a game of it, maybe it's a backdoor cover where they keep it close. But I think Cincinnati gets into the 11. Uh,
0: No real strong uh, move from the professionals in this game. It did open 10, so uh, some folks laid it early, pushing the number out to 11. You guys hit on it. Cincinnati expected them to be better than they were getting blown out last weekend against the Bears. Uh, But the Vikings, off a loss, having a chance to really clamp down defensively injury to keep it tabs on for the Bengals Joe Mixon if he's unable to go Giovanni Bernard just not uh, as dynamic, a playmaker running and catching the ball out of the backfield. Uh, so while it's always difficult to lay double digits and professionals reluctant to do so, uh, you've had slight movement in the Vikings' direction, uh, thinking that they can kind of name the final score with Mike Zimmer matched up against his former team.
1: Uh, Todd Furman, uh, if you missed it earlier in the segment, he said the Bet the Board podcast from, I, I think yesterday you said, a uh, huge investment from you guys this week in that Chargers-Chiefs game, so people should go listen to it to find out which side to be on, Correct.
0: Correct. And I mean, they should be listening to it every Thursday to get their minds right for uh, the NFL season. But definitely uh, some added incentive with a standalone type game on Saturday night. Uh, as I know folks will be glued in trying to figure out how to make sense of this muddled AFC West playoff picture. Awesome.
1: Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Todd. Always a pleasure, gents. Be good. Todd Furman from the Bet the Board podcast. He's been the odds maker at Caesars Palace. Did
2: they and cheat? Because Dave flat what, out said that. I'd go with what Todd told me if Todd will tell me what the pick is before he... Uh, well, I think
1: it's just generally accepted that he follows us up by telling us if well, we're no, right or But, but can,
2: we, can we go to him before he does that and uh, tr- and attempt to get him to tell us what's going to... You, you do
3: kitchen table research every Thursday well, night well, yes, by going to work. websites and finding what people are picking. It's
1: so hard I choose Todd. Dave outsourcing difference? his research. I'm with Dave on this. I think if I it think gets it's out, it's out of wrong. control, then we can maybe you know come up with... Mike, some regulations now. Right.
2: If you want to, if if you want to sit down on the night before and do the the bet the board podcast and listen to that, I have no problem with that.
1: Why don't you just email your research to Dave and I, and then we can all just have the research? You know how much work goes into this. this no, we appreciate that. Lot, I mean, I last night that. in the press box at the Wild game, I did at least oh, I don't know, <laughs> five minutes. Yeah, I don't think you're supposed to be doing gambling-related things in a in a sports press box. I think that's you know
2: what them. I actually found out one time. Somebody told me this: the Twins have have some of those sites blocked. They do. The Twins have I've, them blocked them. I've heard the Wild does not. The Wild let you look at anything you
1: want. I tried to play online poker once during a Twins blowout like six years ago, and I couldn't get on full tilt. So yeah. <laughs> okay, we have confirmation. Uh, KG Kevin Garnett is. He's speaking to different media outlets, and some of the things he's saying about the wolves and Glenn Taylor, we should get into next.
4: Mackie and Judd are back. The Emperor does not share your optimistic appraisal of the situation. On
1: 1500 ESPN. Uh, Oh, I can't wait until Star comes in here. That's basically what it comes down to. Dude, this... If a building does not explode, it's not a good movie. No one's saying that. No one's saying that. Oh basically. Well, this is about It's a Wonderful Life and Christmas movies and old movies and Die Hard. There's like three different possible paths here.
2: It's a yearly debate.
1: I'm even more confident now than ever, and I'm excited that Die Hard 2 has now been, based on Todd Furman, Oddsmaker, and you guys, you've trapped yourselves into basically saying Die Hard 2 is a Christmas movie as well. So I'm excited. I I never even thought about that, but it's true. I'm just saying, no, no, no. There's more snow in Die Hard
2: 2. My only argument in this entire thing is It's a Wonderful Life is a fantastic movie. That's the only thing I'm saying. I'm tired of the old It's a Christmas movie. It's not. That's fine. Let's get past that. Let's just accept the fact that Jimmy Stewart, Donna
1: Reed, It's a Wonderful Life is a classic. Die Hard, is a, Capra, man. Die Hard is a better more captivating movie than It's a Wonderful Life and also it's a Christmas movie. Therefore, it's a better Christmas movie because than It's a Wonderful up, Life. Because stuff blows
2: up. But but your but your Poor stuff does blow but up. But your, your thought process reason. is what makes this great is it's action packed and stuff blows up. I think the plot is more gripping.
1: The oh. plot is more gripping. We're never going to agree on this, mm-hmm. so. We'll get back to this later. This, this debate will be had. This should be agree. the only question in questions today. The only question. And we could just do this for the entire <laughs> well, second half. Are you <laughs>
3: saying questions can go to the bar
1: now? <laughs> yeah, yes, 100%. percent been all already. Right. <laughs> See ya. See ya Monday. <laughs> all right. Uh, Kevin, Kevin Garnett, Garnett is, he, he, I don't know how many different outlets, I don't know what the <laughs> occasion is, but he sat down with Awful over. Announcing and Vice News. And basically, he summarizes how much he hates Glenn Taylor. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to read you a couple excerpts here and get your thoughts. Mm-hmm. To awful announcing, KG said, quote, I don't want to be partners with Glenn Taylor, and I wouldn't want to be partners with Glenn in Minnesota. I would love to be part of a group that buys Glenn out and kind of <laughs> removes him from ownership and going and goes forward. Yes. I love the kind of removes him. No, yeah. removes him. That's just what like you mean. Picks him up from his chair and plops him on the yeah. street. Uh, and then he said to Vice News this week, I like individuals with the Timberwolves, not so much... I like individuals, not so much on the organizations. Obviously, I'm going to be with Minnesota and the players. So we like Minnesota, the fans and the players. Uh-huh. Not so much upstairs. I don't really deal with Minnesota's upstairs. They suck. But Boston all day. You know I'm a C till I die. <laughs> love that. A Celtic, that means. I know, I love that one, though. I always root for Brooklyn. But other than that, I don't really get into too many of the upstairs. Mm -hmm. Talking about Glenn Taylor and the Timberwolves. Mm -hmm. Do you think Kevin Garnett would be a better owner than Glenn Taylor?
2: Um, not necessarily. I think he'd be very different. I think he'd be incredibly proactive, but I also think he's an incredibly emotional person who would, who would make moves irrationally where Glenn at times has probably been way too patient. I would fear that KG would be firing people and trading folks after two games sometimes. So, uh, do I think he'd be different? Absolutely. Do I think he do I think he'd be more effective? Not
1: necessarily. This is a really interesting thing here because Glenn Taylor is objectively one of the worst owners in professional sports the last 30 years or tw- 20 years, I guess 20 plus years he's taken over. He just is a decade and a half playoff drought in a league where more teams make the playoffs than miss the playoffs. It's not that hard to stumble into the playoffs once in fifteen years as an eight seed. It's yeah, not, and they. In, uh, yes. I think one of the biggest indictments of Glenn Taylor, even knowing the volatile personality that Kevin Garnett has, the fact that that relationship—maybe the most important figure in Timberwolves history—is there even a debate there? Flip Saunders and KG; those are the two most important yeah. figures in Wolves He's, history, right? Yes. That you have that one of them passed away, and then with the only one that's left on Earth the relationship is fractured beyond repair to the point where it's one or the other, and Glenn Taylor's the owner right now. One of your main jobs for the last 10 years since KG went to the Celtics should have been to preserve that relationship any way possible. You've been around for 30 years as a franchise, and you don't exactly have a Mount Rushmore of credible figures. If you created one, it'd be Flip Saunders, Kevin Garnett, and like Sam Mitchell (laughs) as -hmm. a player, maybe. That's it. And and then and if you want to throw Doug West on there from the 90s, this, he can be your fourth hey, guy. Hey,
2: this is incredibly sad. And,
1: and you
2: feel terrible uh, for Flip because Flip did so much to repair this in the first place. Because when KG went to Boston, you know, Glenn made the comments that got back to KG there. And Garnett had no interest in coming back here. I mean, if you go back to when Flip made the trade with Brooklyn to get KG back and the work that he had to do and the egos that he had to smooth and now understand that their relationship this time around is even more fractured and worse, this is sad. Because when Garnett left here last year, he should have been brought back to Target Center in on a big night. The 21 should have gone to the rafters. This is a no-brainer, and to see the destruction done here is really, really, really it is. sad.
1: Now, to answer that question, would KG be a better owner than Glenn Taylor? It wouldn't take a lot to be a better owner than Glenn Taylor has been over the past 20 years. The best thing you can say about him is that he's a really nice guy, and he helped facilitate the building of an awesome practice facility, and he empowered Flip Saunders. Like, the— those are probably the three things you could say about him as an owner. Save the team at the time too. Sure, huge but that's deal. Twenty in plus years. Sure, ago. but that was still a huge deal. But KG is such a schizophrenic personality, and we've heard stories for years about sometimes how poorly he'll treat people behind the scenes, but then how gregarious he can be as well. And you've seen this this wild range of personalities with him. I don't think KG is the visionary type. I think he's more the boat rower. Yep, to steal a phrase from uh, PJ Fleck. And you need both those things. I mean, KG as a player even was just the grinder. He's going to go out there and he's going to fill up the box score and uh, and he and that, that's I think for him his best role as an owner would be minority owner like Magic Johnson with the uh, the, the Dodgers mm-hmm. minority owner but figurehead. So a guy that can get out there get people excited, but he's not going to be the one that goes and hires an analytics department or. Or hires a really sharp, savvy president of basketball operations. Yeah, I don't even know if he would retain Tom Thibodeau if he took over. I don't know if he could have the capability though. Uh, He's he's wound so
2: tight. I think if he was part of a group of a team that started to struggle or didn't play well for an extended period of time, I don't know that he could could recuse himself and be like, okay, I got to calm down. I think he'd be in the ear of the, the people that ran the team, basically on a day-to-day basis, saying, "Let's do this, let's do that." You know, Glenn's problem lots of times is Glenn has been way too slow to way too slow to move and, and hasn't known enough people. KG knows people, but I don't know. I don't know if things started to go south if KG would continue to listen to those people or just basically say, "We got to make changes." That would be my fear
1: with KG. Yeah. I don't know. I can't I can't say definitively that he'd be a better owner than Glenn Taylor. I just want I the know, guy,
2: man. I just want them to get to the point, and this is now going to take years, clearly, where they can get him back here and and essentially say, okay, the greatest player in franchise history is going to be honored.
1: Yeah, he should be part of the franchise. The fact that he's out working he's being paid as a consultant to work out Bucks players. So I, I'll see him, I follow him on Instagram and social media. Yeah. And he'll post pictures working out with Milwaukee Bucks players at practice. Yeah. That's so like. Come on, Glenn right. Taylor. What Kevin Garnett is working out with Bucks players? And how hard he should be at Target Center's practice facility every single day that you want him there. And here, here's my question about this whole thing: How
2: hard would it have been when Flip died to to make this smooth? Like, like what did they what did they do? Did they because it sounds it sounds to me. Like they essentially flip died, and then and then KG got left and wasn't really taken care of. I I don't understand why you wouldn't say, okay, flip died. Now one of the most important things for flip, basically, right, is to make sure that we make this right. Yeah. And if you continue to play, that's great. If you don't, that's fine too. But Kevin, how can we make this right with you?
1: And I know that that Glenn Get Taylor that. was on Doogie Scoop podcast a few weeks ago, and he said, hey. The, the door is open whenever KG wants to come back. He's welcome to. So I know the Wolves and Glenn Taylor would make it sound like, hey, we're all good here. I mean, anytime he wants to come back. But it's and even if it's a high maintenance thing that has to be dealt with where you have to like write an apology, whatever has to be done. He should be part of the franchise. Sure. And ego should be put aside. And yes. some of it's on KG, too. If KG ever wants to be a successful owner of a franchise, he's going to have to tone down the grudges and just be more of an empathetic leader. Right. And I don't know if he has that in his DNA, but the relationship shouldn't be this fractured. Right. And and in this case,
2: once flipped did all that work to bring him back, you needed to make damn sure that 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 didn't go south again and it's worse now. So the one thing Glenn Glenn in my opinion had to work very hard or should have to make sure that KG left here on the best terms possible. Yeah. And now it's worse. It's uh, not better.
1: If you guys have thoughts, uh, do you think KG would be a better owner than Glenn Taylor? He's out there. He's, he's he's telling media outlets that he'd like to buy the team from Glenn Taylor and then get rid of Glenn Taylor. 651-646-8255, 877-615-1500. Mackie and Judd live from the TCL Broadcast Studios. And also, since we're going back in the the Wolves way back machine with all this KG talk, I want to take you back in the Twins way back machine. I think something's going to happen here in the next few weeks that is unjust. Mackie and Judd. Mackie and Judd are back. Show me what you got. On 1500
3: ESPN. Another thank you to all of you fantastic listeners, as together we were able to raise a record breaking. $48,163 during Tuesday's Sports Fantasy Auction. All the money raised goes to benefit Courage, Kenny Rehabilitation Institute's ABLE Program and ABLE Scholarship Fund. Thank you to everyone who called in, participated, made their bids, purchased items. And thank you to the great sponsors and partners as well. ABLE Chiropractic, TCL TV, Town Hall Brewery, Federated Insurance, Sun Country Airlines, Minutemen, and all of the local sports teams.
1: Thank you, Dave Harrigan. Got my official Minnesota Twins Hall of Fame ballot in the mail sometime in the last few days. That makes one of us. Yeah, why aren't you? It's it's a 67-person committee, which includes local and national baseball writers, Twins broadcasters, Twins Hall of Fame members, and local TV and radio members. I don't know why. I have no have idea ever, why. Have you ever voted on the Twins Hall of Fame? I got a ballot once. How that, long ago? Probably five years. Four or five years ago, and that was the one time I got a ballot, and I haven't <laughs> seen you, one since. Did you write in a hockey player? And that's why they didn't give you a ballot the second year. Craig Hartsburg. You, you wrote in Dino it, it should be
2: Craig Hartsburg.
1: <laughs> great defenseman. Anyway, go on. Um, there are, let's see here. Uh, looks like there's about 16 names on the ballot this year. I'm voting for one, Johan Santana. Mm-hmm. Johan Santana absolutely deserves to be in the Twins Hall of Fame. I think Johan Santana deserves a lot more consideration for the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame than he is reportedly getting. I saw a couple people speculating that he might not even get enough votes to stay on the ballot for a second year. What is it, like 5% or 10% of the votes you have to get to stay on the ballot yes. for a second year? Yes. And correct. people are looking at Johan saying, yeah, his career pretty much fizzled by the time he was you know, in his early 30s, and it's a, it's a longevity thing for him. He just didn't do it long enough. So my question to you is, when did longevity become more important than domination in the Hall of Fame voting process? Now I do think obviously both need to be considered very strongly, and if you if you have both domination and longevity, you're in in any sport. Yeah. Tom Brady, longevity and domination. Oh, sure, and rings. yes, You know, J- Derek Jeter, longevity, domination. You're in. LeBron James. You could you could make right. a list. Gotcha. But if you only have one of those two qualities in mass, like let's say I can give you an example, or probably ten of them too. But if you only have longevity, but you're really good, or you were dominant. And maybe only did it for eight years. Mm-hmm. I think dominance should weigh heavier than longevity when deciding to put someone in the Hall of Fame. I don't get this, um, and, and I'm not saying that he
2: should go in, but he should definitely stay on the ballot. He should get a ton of consideration. And, and but, I'd put him in. Here's what I don't get. I don't understand what, and and there aren't rules per se, but I do. So are so they're saying he didn't do it. L- long enough, but he had an extended span of being really good. I mean, just because it wasn't, what, 10 years or something. Now, he didn't win rings. If you want to come back and say he didn't win championships, okay, you can say that. But the 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 arbitrary you didn't dominate for l- long enough is a very weird thing to me. If you, if you were great in your time, and your time cannot be two years, but if you were great for an extended period of time, which to me is four or five years, you should be considered. And and to then say but well no I've got I've I've got a figure in my head of years that you didn't reach is very arbitrary
1: I think. Well, yes, I think we put a lot of we put a lot of stock into counting numbers and that's why longevity comes into play where if you played long enough to to gather your three thousand hits, now most guys who get to three thousand hits are oh. also really good in their hall. Blylevin. of Blyleven, classic forever, example, and
2: he's a he's he's the perfect example of a yep. guy
1: who stuck around so long that eventually he got it. And at no point was Burp Blyleven. Correct me if I'm wrong. This was mostly before I was born. At no point was he considered for sure the best pitcher in baseball. Right? I he was always so. among the better pitchers in baseball. Yes. Let me give another example here. Barry Larkin. So who deserves the Hall of Fame more? This is longevity versus dominance. Uh If you have both, you're in, no question. But if it's kind of either or, Barry Larkin was very, very good defensively and offensively for 20 years, 19 or 20 years. He played until he was 40 years old. But offensively, he never led the majors in any offensive categories. Never batting average, never runs scored, never home runs, never any of those things. And you could even argue that he was overshadowed defensively by Ozzie Smith early in his career. And then guys like Derek Jeter and Alex Rodriguez came around in the 90s and 2000s and overshadowed him late. So Barry Larkin was always a very, very good player. And I'm not even saying he shouldn't be a Hall of Famer. I'm just saying Barry Larkin's in, and he's very good for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Johan Santana, mm-hmm. for seven to nine years, was the best starting pitcher in baseball. In fact, during his run of dominance... Uh Johan Santana, from like 2002 through about 2010, no starting pitcher over that stretch had a lower ERA. He had a lower ERA than Roy Halladay, Tim Lincecum, Felix Hernandez, Roy Oswalt, I could keep going, multiple Cy Young awards. If you take his best seven-year stretch, which is a long time to be dominant, if you take a seven-year stretch for Johan Santana, the best ERA and the most strikeouts among starting pitchers. His best seven year stretch, more strikeouts than Randy Johnson, Pedro Martinez, and uh, there's also something that uh, I, it, mm-hmm. they, they measure this on Baseball Reference. They take for, for they put the Hall of Fame ballot on BaseballReference.com, mm-hmm. and they put best seven year stretches in terms of wins above replacement. So they just take all of your attributes as a hitter. They include defense and base running and how well you were with the bat, and then with a, for a pitcher, they take all your so your best seven year stretch according to wins above replacement. How dominant were you? On this year's ballot, the list in order goes Bonds, Clemens, Schilling, Chipper Jones, Andrew Jones, and Johan Santana. His best seven-year stretch is above Manny Ramirez, Mike Mussina, Edgar Martinez, Scott Rowland, Jim Tomey, Larry Walker, Vlad Guerrero. So I get that he doesn't have the longevity, but why should we just throw players out who were dominant for seven to nine to ten years and I, if he had a ring, I think it'd be it, because Puckett was 10 years, but he had two rings yes. and had those iconic a- and moments. And that, yes. and that definitely matters. And Barry Larkin, I think, has at least one ring with the uh, 1990 Reds. And Jack's got rings. So if you were that dominant for a seven to nine year stretch and you might get bounced off the ballot one year, one and done. That makes no that, sense. That's terrible to me. Dominance should matter more than longevity, or at least more than if it he, does. If he gets
2: uh, bounced from the ballot after one, Time that's ridiculous.
1: Absolutely, Terrell Davis had that's four ridiculous. years basically in the NFL. Now he won two rings and did a lot in those four years, but he had four years, and no one said, "Yeah, I don't know, longevity is Yo- not
2: there." If Yo- he's a Hall of Famer, if Johan Santana, if you if you took his success and and lack of rings and moved it to the Yankees at the same time, he gets votes. No question in my mind. This is about, but you know what? A lot of times, this entire co- conversation comes down to did you did you win a ring and where did you achieve your success because people people love the legend right if Santana pitched in the Bronx the legend of Santana would be oh my God I was there the night he pitched this game or that game and it would be a, a big deal he's going to be if if he gets taken off the ballot after one try it's based on the fact that he pitched in this market in the Metrodome and a lot of people didn't see it and they look now and say oh yeah that's good. Well, no. At the time, it was fantastic. Here, here's my question: Why just one twin on your uh, ballot?
1: Because um, I don't think we need five guys going in. I, well, I, I can see that. Not five. I think Johan Santana. First of all, I think Johan Santana is the only guy on this list that's a borderline Major League Baseball Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. So he's on it. Um, well, let's go through the list when we come back here. Okay. There's 15 names on the list of the Twins. I think there's at least one or Hall two of the that- ballot. That also deserve votes. Okay, and then superstar Mike Morris coming in here at the top of the hour. Mackie and Judd.
3: Phil Mackie.
1: He's a very excitable guy. Sometimes, you know, he gets off
3: the reservation a little bit. Judd Zolgad. And he's like 200 years old. He's like the most negative dude in the world.
1: Mackie and Judd on 1500 ESPN. All right, here's here's the list. Twins Hall of Fame ballot for 2018. So All right. right. We already talked about Johan Santana. Some people are chiming in here on uh, on Johan that uh, one person brought up. Let me see here. Matt brought up Omar Vizquel as a guy who, like, might get in. He's not in the Hall of Fame, right? He no, nope. he's not on the ballot. I don't think until well, he should be. I he's, think he's going to be on it this year for sure. Is he okay? Yeah, I think he is on it. Um, in fact, let's see here. Omar, Vizquel. yep, there he is. He's on the ballot. Uh, first year on the ballot, mm-hmm. one of the great defensive players of all time. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, man, that's that's a guy who, uh, he, he came just short of 3,000 hits. So, if he gets in, it's because of defense and then longevity as an offensive player because mm-hmm. he played for so long. Mm-hmm. But no one would say that he was dominant for the seven-year stretch that Johan Santana was. So that's uh, that's the debate we had last segment about Johan Santana for the Major League Hall of Fame. Here are the other players. I, I just voted for one. Johan Santana going to send this in today for my Twins Hall of Fame ballot. Here's the other ones. Uh, you want to just go one by one and you'd say if they're a Hall of Famer or not? Sure, Dave Boswell, never saw him pitch, 1960s. Um, I don't think so. 20-game winner in 1969, 3.28 ERA Pat from 64 sure. to 69. Yeah, but he, he was also before my time. so uh, He was the uh, the youngest Twins player ever to appear in a World Series, 20 years old, 1965. Mm-hmm. Tom Bernanski. I think this one's very intriguing. Kadir's in. Because if
2: Kadir's in, I think Bruno should be in. I don't know if God had Bruno. Now, would Bruno come back for it now? I have no idea. But uh if Kedir's in, Bruno has a World Series with this club. Uh had a, a few very nice years w- with this team. I think there's a I think if Kadir's in, there's a
1: very good case to be made that Brunanski should be in. Yeah, I mean, and then I'll, I'll throw another one out here, too, since we're going down the list. Uh, Dan Gladden, this one was means, only here for five seasons but won two World this one, Series. This
2: one to me is a no-brainer. And a broadcaster. He, he, he's in.
1: He should be in. He
2: should be in. In fact, in fact, fact vote, I would vote I'm for gonna, him vote if I was team. you. Yep, you're right. Dan Gladden should be in. No questions asked. In 87, when they got him from the Giants, this organization, Phil, I can't tell you how long they had been looking for a leadoff guy. It had seemed like forever. Dan Gladden came here and solved that problem. He brought a ton to the table, and as you said, won not one, but two
1: World Series. Dan Gladden should be in this hall. thing. Yeah, and so Kadir won one playoff series in 2002, so it wasn't like there was a bunch of playoff cred there. Correct. And it had fewer home runs in his Twins career than Tom Brunansky. if Kadir's so in, in, Brunansky should for sure be in, if and Dan
2: Gladden. If Kadir's in, Brunansky sh- should be in, Gladden sh- should be in without question. And, Glad-
1: uh, and Gladden sh- uh, should have gone in before Michael went in. Dan Gladden ranks first all-time on the Twins' postseason list, runs scored, uh, second in hits postseason, and RBI, too, so big if, postseason performance. If I'm not mistaken, in Game 1,
2: in 87 against the Cardinals, he hit a grand slam.
1: Yeah. He should be in.
2: Uh, Dean Chance is on the list. Before my time again, that's 1967
1: a one. All-Star starter with 20 wins. He only pitched three years with the Twins. Uh, pretty dominant there. Dave Goltz from the 70s. I would say no on that one. Okay. Solid pitcher, but no. Mudcat Grant, four years of Mudcat Grant in the 60s. 65 World Series was key to that team. Um, well, the league and wins one year, 21, yeah, if that matters. I would say to you. probably. Yep. Um Christian Guzman. No. I know. Come way. on, man. No way. No chance. Brian Harper. Also, no. A, yeah. uh,
2: a a guy who could definitely hit a very nice find. Not a good defensive catcher. I would say no. Yeah. Uh Jock Jones on the Twins Hall of Fame ballot. Nah. I think no. I think I,
1: fans like Jock a lot. I would say that he uh, he should not be. Yeah. Uh, Corey Kosky, they're getting a lot of these contraction twins on here now. And these guys are loved. See, the only thing that Kadir has over Jock Jones and Corey Kosky is he just played here longer. Jock Jones played here for six or seven seasons, Corey Kosky for six or seven seasons, and Kadir for a decade. And Michael was probably the, the most loved, right?
2: Koski was the, was the best of that group. Right, but I'm saying I'm saying Kedair was the most loved. Koski was probably the best of the
1: group. Yeah. Um, Shane Mack. I would say no. He's really underrated. Rule Shane five, Mack is rule one of the underrated. The yeah. Great pickup. If, he batted 326 one year, big on-base percentage guy, if, played great defense. If I'm
2: not mistaken, in the same Rule 5 draft, perhaps, the Padres, if, if it wasn't the same draft, it, it was right around the same time, the Padres lost Dave Hollins to Philadelphia and Shane Mack to the Twins. Hmm.
1: Wow. That's a, heck of a, that's a heck of a double whammy. Their farm system must have been loaded that year. They couldn't put all those yeah. guys on the 40-man, uh, or they were incompetent. Uh, Jeff Reardon, three years as the closer, including, he's sixth all-time on the Twins' saves list, which isn't, I mean, I would say not say much. Okay, I would say no. To. He was kind of a walk the plank reliever. Yeah. If I'm ranking Twins closers, Aggie number one, Joe Nathan number two, yes. maybe even reversed. But Aggie, but those has two have top ones. I agree. And then Glenn Perkins had a five year run of dominance on bad I like teams. Ridden, but I don't think he Gordano, in the Hall of Fame. Johan in, and then the other three names on the Twins Hall of Fame ballot are Roy Molly Cesar Tovar, and Al Worthington. Uh, the last two I don't know en- enough about. Um, Smalley's intriguing. He was kind of a role player on that 87 yes. World series team. He spent seven years with the Twins, late 70s, early 80s. Yes. And then I think you do have to account for, to some degree, you know, if, if we're going to put broadcasters in, like if John Gordon goes in, yeah. okay, Dan Gladden might not be the legendary broadcaster of a Herb Carneal, but he's a broadcaster and had the Twins career. I think just Twins' presence should matter. Roy, Roy
2: was Kadiar before Kadiar. He was loved.
1: Just a good, solid, a really good player, guy,
2: yeah. a really solid player, a good player. All star. I game. like him personally, so I'm I'm probably biased. But I would but I would say of of the names that you
1: read, the fact that Gladden is not there is a joke. So Dan I'm Gladden should be there. So I'm going to put Dan Gladden and Johan Santana on my ballot I and nail it in with confidence. I
2: think Royce was Royce telling me he thinks Tovar should be in. There was one that Patrick was big on, and I I forget whom it was. And it was before our time. Uh, well, but he, it was he made one big, of those guys. Who was the
1: one from a couple Camilo years Pasquale? Ago. Yeah, he made a big. He campaign said that was a Pasquale. complete joke. That that he may have been like, paying people to vote.
2: <laughs> he claimed Patrick told me if Pasquale doesn't go in this year, I'm gonna tear up my ballot, send it back to the Twins, <laughs> and tell him never send me a ballot again. Oh
1: man, uh, Mudcat Grant is a really, really compelling one too because 1965, he was he led the league in shutouts, he led the league in wins, mm-hmm. 3.30 ERA. Uh, finished Homered sixth in, in the, the MVP Series.
2: voting. Homered against the uh, D- Dodgers, I believe, at the Met in that World Series. Yeah, oh, but longevity,
1: longevity. I don't get this whole. Longevity I mean, is not as important as dominance. Dominance is more important than longevity for for Hall of Famers. But I'm I don't sorry.
2: understand what what's the line there. Like, if someone could explain to me, okay, you pitched, okay, you pitched seven years. That's enough. Yeah, but you pitched six. That's not okay, quite enough.
1: Well, what's a greater accomplishment then? Uh, right. Now, so, uh, if if Bryce Harper, for instance, or let's say Mike Trout. Mike Trout's been in the league for, what, I think six seasons now? Yeah, that's probably about right. If So Omar Vizquel is on the ballot right now. The guy, That dude played two or two <laughs> decades in the major leagues. Yes. And was one of the great—he's one of the great defensive players for sure, so I, my argument might be flawed here. But if Mike Trout got hit by a bus after a game and could never play baseball again for the rest of his life, yeah. but you had—it's actually been seven seasons, but you had seven seasons of Mike Trout through age 25— Two hundred one career homers. So the counting stats aren't really there, right? Two hundred one career homers, a thousand career hits. Yep. But that dude has two MVPs, a rookie of the year. He's led the league in stolen bases, RBIs, runs scored four times. He's led the league in on base percentage twice. Mm-hmm. He's a career three oh six hitter. Mike Trout is more of a Hall of Famer in seven years of that kind of dominance. Then some of the guys that are in based on longevity and, and I counting numbers. I think he would get
2: in, but I guess I don't know for sure. Because the question becomes, where do people draw that? If, if there's a line there for some,
1: where do they draw that line? But if Mike Trout, who has real no postseason, doesn't want to ring. Yeah. If Mike Trout gets in with those seven years, Johan Santana should be in too. But if Trout had those, had that time span in New York, guess what? He walks in. Which is weird because he's in, a, I'm saying, in, a, in LA. But. Sure,
2: but I'm saying... Yeah, and if if he he had put up those stats with the Dodgers, he probably walks in, but he's with the Angels. So, and I'm telling you, if you took Santana's prime and put him in the Bronx, this would be a completely different conversation right now.
1: Yeah. So, all right. That was fun. Um, I'm going to mail this ballot in here. uh, Dan Gladden, Johan Santana. Let's come back here. And, you know, John Randall's documentary comes out tonight on NFL Network A Football Life. Let's get some stories from a guy who played with John Randall in the 90s here. Superstar Mike Morris comes
4: in for his Friday appearance with us until 1 o'clock. It's game show Friday. Mackie and Judd. Hi, this is Chris Howard, host of Plugged In with Chris Howard. The college football playoff committee made their decision on Sunday, and as much as I loathe the idea of Ohio State losing their way into the college football playoff, I 100% agree with OSU making it in over Bama.